3: Hello and welcome to the Brexit special edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios and I am in London and Emily Peck of Huffington Post is in New York. Hello, hello. As is Anna Shemansky. Hello. And I am joined here in London by Alex White, Hi, Alex. Hi. Alex, Alex um, he's a partner of something called Flint Global, which... uh, Do we need to know what Flint Global is?
4: We're an advisory firm.
3: So he is going to give us advice on what on earth... um, this Just whole Brexit on. thing is, I've been wanting to do, as you know, if you've been listening to Slate Money for a while, I have been wanting to do this Brexit edition for a while, and Alex is super up on this. He was a treasury, like the proper English treasury, uh, <laughs> um, not, not the American treasury who goes off and pals around with Saudis. No, the proper British <laughs> treasury department, and then...
4: That loses all the money.
3: JP Morgan, who also lose money in London, apparently. <laughs> Alex is <laughs> there going
4: to no all the money. thread.
3: <laughs> There are no. He was not the London whale, but he did leave J.P. Morgan. He's now at Flint Global, and he is going to explain this whole thing to us um, because as Emily Bell um, of Columbia University and formerly of The Guardian said, she, like me, is a Brit in New York, and it is so hard to keep on top of this. When you try and read stories about mm. Brexit – Um, especially in the British press, because you assume that they understand this better. They wind up so deep in the weeds that you really don't understand the big picture of what's going on at all. Um, So, Alex, bring us very quickly up to speed on sort of where are we? Right now, and is it as much of an omni shambles as everyone seems to think it is?
4: It's probably an even bigger omni shambles. Let, let's let's start at the beginning, which is the big picture question of what is going on here and what what Brexit's about. Before we go into kind of where we are in the process, um, the the point that people miss is that this is this is a big ideological shift. This is not necessarily a set of policy prescriptions that are subject to Rational analysis, where we can sit down and talk about cost benefit for X constituency and Y constituency. This is basically a big ideological shift that the UK has taken um, on on relative on you know without a a very clear majority in favour of it. But there's been brewing for years. Now you can you can draw a link back to. Uh, the euro skepticism in both parties over the thirty forty years since we joined, but you can also draw a link more closely to the financial crisis the res- the political response to it um austerity uh popular reaction popular dis- So what 's the
3: ideology what 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 is does this ideology have a name this kind of pro leave ideology uh
4: no, but we could create <laughs> one <laughs> um i mean it's it 's brexitism um Isn't it 's a belief there's a little
1: nationalism in there? A little, maybe a little racism going on? A reaction yeah, to I all mean, the migrants coming in? Uh,
4: yeah. So we we've got to be careful, right? Because this is half the population, and it's not necessarily no the case that half half the British population is racist. But but it's not but it, not the case. It's not not necessarily <laughs> not the case. Um, but there are there are different motivations for 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 different parts of the Brexit crowd, and this is it is a constituency of view that is made up of lots and lots of different little tribes. So there are the 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 globalists, the the global free marketeers who say, look, we want to go out into the world and trade. But there's like um, eight of those, right? There's like eight of those, yeah. Um, the, the vast majority, I mean, I guess the, the,
3: the two questions I have is number one, the majority or the tiny slim majority who voted in favor of Brexit, did they actually have a clue what they were voting for? And more germanely right now, if they could have their druthers and do it all over again, would they vote the same way?
4: Well... Let me take the second of those first and the first of those second right on the on the on the second of those, would they vote the same way? The polling data at the moment says that remain is narrowly ahead remain would win fifty three fifty two to forty seven forty eight if people voted now, but that's exactly what the polls were telling us before the referendum the first time round, <laughs> so I think it's naive to suggest that there's been this great groundswell change of opinion i mean actually, one of the things that's really interesting is. A hell of a lot has happened in the UK over the last couple of years. There's been high drama, there's been election, there's been, uh, you know, all of the varying uh, potential disasters of no deal coming into view now. But through all of that, public opinion has been more or less static. I mean, you have peaks and troughs, but basically people are are pretty much still divided down the middle on, on, um, on whether they should go for it isn't this part
5: of the reason why it's so hard for may's government to come up with a solution that is going to be acceptable to both the kind of more the remainers as well as the brexiters as well as the eu
4: yeah i mean it it's effectively impossible i mean i i don't carry many cards for mrs may i don't think she's a uh... Particularly fantastic politician, but it would take an she's incredibly a talented politician. She is a good dancer. <laughs> she's a great dancer. Best best dancer in the country, probably. Um, she um, she's not a great politician, but it would have taken an an amazing politician to be able to thread the needle be- between all of the different um, tribes on this issue. It's just not possible to satisfy all of the constituencies a- at all.
3: So, in terms of the um, the sort of hardcore brexiteers in the conservative party who are the whole reason why um the referendum was called in the first place and who need to be placated in one way or another that you know the davises and johnsons and all these like random people yeah um what would actually
4: make them happy (laughs) <laughs> well, it varies from character to character, right? So Boris Johnson, what would make him happy is incredibly straightforward and easy. Just being prime minister. Being prime minister. It's not necessarily so great for the rest of us. But, you know, that's, that's what would make him happy. Um, Davis is a more ideological character. He really believes in this. This is his project. Wait, I'm sorry. Um, who, who is Davis. David Davis was the guy who was Brexit secretary for two years until he, a little under two years until he resigned earlier this year.
3: Basically, Theresa May tried to cobble together a compromise, but he's one of these no compromise folks. So rather than go along with the Theresa May compromise, he
4: resigned, which was extremely helpful. Yeah, and then forced Johnson to resign because uh, Johnson can't resist a headline. If somebody else is resigning, he's got to be resigning too. So but so Davis, you know he was Brexit secretary, by all accounts, he's not a complete moron. so what does he actually want um, he, he wants the u k to leave the e u and and that is the kind of synquanon on of, of all of this. I mean, I think there's, there's an interesting debate that we should touch on a little bit here of of what brexit means, um, and this goes back to your question earlier of do, did people know what they were voting for? did they know what they were going to get um, so clearly no nobody knew that we would be in this particular position. The, the vote for Brexit was a negative vote. It was an anti-vote. It was a vote against something. It wasn't a vote for something. But if you are taking this transformational step and leaving the EU, you 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 have to be going somewhere. It's not possible to be purely existing in a, in a negative, in a vacuum of something that you're no longer part of. So the big problem for the Brexiteers, collectively, was that they never put forward a very clear vision of, OK, what replaces the UK's relationship with the EU? Beyond a sort of generic generalist, you know, the UK will go out and trade with the world and a bit of imperial nostalgia thrown into that. There was no... There was no positive vision. So for somebody like Davis, it's, uh, look, we want to leave the EU. Leave means leave. Let's get out. Um, And and you're saying there's been an ideological shift. Hmm. And this is really
3: weird to me because normally when there's an ideological shift, I mean, not only does this ideology not have a name, it doesn't even seem to have a vision. It doesn't seem to have anything that it wants. What kind of ideology is people going out and voting in their millions for a non-thing?
4: Yeah, it's it's a very good question. And maybe I'm jumping the gun a little bit and calling it an ideology. But I, the reason that I do is because I don't think it is subject to rational analysis about what people want in concrete terms and what the Cost-benefit trade-offs are of a, you know, in the, in in a way that you would with a normal policy choice. So I think it is ideologically driven. Maybe I'm going too far in calling it an ideology itself. And you're right, to, you're right to ask the question of what it what it's all about. But I don't think they know, it's right? Because it seems like it's, it's a, it seems like basically
5: every option that is out there is going to be far worse. Than what they currently have, whether it's a Norway style option where you still have to allow the free movement of people or whether it's almost any of the other options where you're going to have to abide by all the EU rules but not be allowed to vote on any of them.
1: It seems like the ideology at stake is is the EU's ideology, right? I mean, the reason the EU doesn't like the solution that May put forward is because she wants to sort of have it both ways. As far as I understand it, she wants to have the good trade deal with the EU but she wants more control over the free movement of people right so if, if the yeah. EU sort of gives into that then it looks it looks like anybody can have this deal and the whole ideology of the EU where it's like free movement of people yeah. and goods and services and whatnot is is basically at stake so the only the only people I see with an actual real ideology seem to be the Europeans and and isn't it more like the Brexiter's ideology is just like we want to be free or something, or we think sovereignty? I have, I, have an I don't answer for
3: you, Emily. <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring in someone who can answer that question. Dun
1: dun dun um,
3: dun dun dun. <laughs> <laughs> okay, hold that thought. Okay, so I have actually someone who's going to answer Emily's question right here. Is Mr. Faisal Islam? The grandest of British grandees. Ooh. You are, you are currently the some grand political editor of Sky News. Is that right?
6: That's the official title.
3: And you're previously at all manner of even grander institutions. A bit like Alex here. You're going down in the world from treasury to some consultancy. Um, anyway, Faisal is, you're on top of the news cycle sort of on an intraday basis, mm. which is, A good thing to be able to answer our question and it's also a bad thing because this is a single podcast which is like the one time that slate listeners get to understand brexit for you know four years so without getting too much in the weeds of like what happened yesterday um what's the sort of relationship here between britain and europe and what does europe want and will they get it
6: so the problem is that in answering that The fundamental fact, and I think it conditions the negotiation, is that the UK is split, and it's still split. And that's a political, demographic, familial thing within the parties, between the parties. And so when you ask me, what does the UK want? There's a separate answer for the UK government, but the EU seems to have cottoned on. There's a different answer, potentially, of the UK people. And where it gets extremely interesting is when you overlay sophology and voting demographics on that and you have an older generation that voted i think assembly was talking about for freedoms from eu influence and institutions an older generation disproportionately does not work obviously being more retired being the asset owners of the united kingdom it's fascinating politics to this and then a younger generation when i say young i would say the under 45s I don't think that count. Under 50s, <laughs> even. Let's go the whole hog under 50s. <laughs> the under 48, <laughs> right? Um, who, are, who, by and large, um, disproportionately voted uh, Remain, and it gets very, int- it gets very interesting that because if you think about the arguments about the economy, about the impact on jobs, the impact on sort of multinational companies, the impact on people that want to go and live and work in Europe, didn't hit, didn't impact upon an older generation that does not need to do that, does not want to do that. Um, So I think when Europe looks at this, and this is down to prime ministerial level or leader level, uh, Anglophiles, when I say Anglophiles, I mean people who appreciate Britain and its politics, like the French president, people won't admit that, but he he has a keen, detailed knowledge for British politics uh, of the centrist variety, big fan of Tony Blair, obviously, or the Irish prime minister, They look at the United Kingdom and they think, yes, we have a vote which was to free the United Kingdom from the oversight of EU law, but you have a 50-50 split and you have a government that put to the people only a year ago, let's have a pretty clean break, as they call it, hard Brexit, as it's referred to more pejoratively, and they lost their majority. So only the British people could give the most complicated challenge you could imagine <laughs> in disentangling a country from 44 decades of EU law and then remove the majority of the parliament in order to enact the laws in order to affect that. It's a classic British, I think we call it a middle finger, <laughs> to the elites of the United Kingdom that they do a complicated enough task and then remove the parliamentary majority. So if you're Europe... I think, on the one hand, you've got to take into account what you're being told by a government. On the other hand, you think, I think they do think, we play the numbers game here, we get the United Kingdom into a kind of permanent uh, Brexit-in-name-only status for a few years, and are they just going to try and wait it out as uh, younger people... You don't even have to change anybody's mind. I mean, there's been some fairly sick demographic calculations yeah, but done. Old
3: people just die, don't they?
6: Well, you know, that's no, yes, basically. I mean, that's obviously well, everyone, everyone does, everyone does. <laughs> but old, old people die more, so they also so, vote more. so, so I mean, yeah, yeah. So there's the, there's no doubt the long, longer. T- so here's the, here's the really interesting question, which is: older people become more conservative as they grow older. Do they become more Eurosceptic as they grow older? I think if you step back from all of this, actually, there's a really fundamental thing about Brexit, which is it's not a normal set of political decisions that was made at that referendum. If you think about it at core, it's 17. Uh, Forget six million winning over 16.1, but the 16.1 losing, not just sort of losing an election and therefore having a government they don't want, but it's fundamental changes to the rights that they voted to continue
3: it's, it's kind of the end of mm. liberal democracy like you don't i, I ha- wouldn't say i, I wouldn't <laughs> say that and
6: i think the Brexiters would argue no it's not it's the epitome it's the apotheosis of for them of liberal democracy because they feel like the eu centralizes too much power is too much of a kind of corporate uh, entity uh, uh, there's and what's often missed actually is uh, and this is this is this is one of the problems for the brexit campaign is the brexit campaign is led by libertarians it's a product of the right intellectually but the campaign they ran in 2016 i would argue was a left-wing and statist campaign about taking back control about 350 million pounds per week which is basically chuck money at mm. the nhs on a red bus designed to appeal to Labour voters, literally the bus painted red. It is a le- it is a it is more of a left wing argument. I'll say this than it is a right wing argument. There's a fundamental contradiction there, and when you think about it, in in working out the shape of Brexit from a UK perspective, leaving the customs union, the EU customs union, has become this fundamental flag to wave for Brexit. Which will prove the which will prove the point of Brexit in the future? Why? Because it enables the freedom to sign your own trade deals. And yet, yet as a left wing project, I would argue a status project that is profoundly unpopular. The idea of the sorts of uh, the sorts of um, quid pro quo and trade offs you'd have to make to get a trade deal with Donald Trump's America or China or Malaysia or whatever. It turns out when you look at the polling numbers, as is the case across the Western world, doing the free trade de- deals for which Brexit creates the freedom for you to do it, well, those free trade deals, well, they certainly, I'll just put it like this, they aren't as popular as people make out. Yeah, they're
3: not popular at all. But <laughs> I want I well, to go back to this last idea because I think it's its super, the the number one question, which I've been sort of struggling with in my mind for the past two years, is it's basically what's worse, Trump or Brexit? And I think the answer to that question is entirely a function of the degree to which Brexit is either temporary or permanent, because Trump will end mm. at some point, somehow. Uh, you know, it might be sooner, it might be later, and it's going to be bad while it happens, but then it will, and then it, he will be replaced by someone else. The question I have for Alex is, is Brexit going, you know, is it reversible, And Is it likely to ever be reversed? Can we ever go back to, you know, being in Europe if the young people don't change their minds when they get older?
4: Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, the question of the relationship between the UK and the rest of Europe is always going to be part of UK politics. It has been um for the whole of living memory it will continue to be whatever type of brexit deal or non deal we get there's going to be um an incredibly tightly woven mesh of interrelationships at both personal and economic level and uh, governmental level and it's it's you know the the debate about the nature of those relationships how tightly we want them to be held how integrated we want to be is going to continue under all conceivable scenarios
1: Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Well, I was wondering thinking about this from my American perspective, we just went through something here where, you know, Donald Trump went off on NAFTA and he won NAFTA is so terrible and he wants to get rid of NAFTA. So he gets rid of NAFTA and he renegotiates a trade deal that is basically the same as NAFTA with some more modern mm. updates. And that got me thinking a little,
3: little it, bit less pronounceable. Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> US uh, whatever it's the same thing (laughs) Um, everything's and and the bottom line is everything's fine and um as i'm looking at brexit more and more and i'm seeing stories about um people hoarding food and the the fear of supermarkets running out of things and i'm thinking that's not happening the brits are going to want stability they're going to renegotiate something and at the at the end of the day it's just going to be like it's just going to be like NAFTA. Everything is going to be fine. And I don't know if I'm just well, overly uh, simplifying all of this. Faisal but... is
3: grinning and shaking his head. And he's <laughs> like, yeah, we like. I saw this last <laughs> week, actually, that, that, that Theresa May had this wonderful idea that Britain could be in a customs union with Northern Ireland, and Northern Ireland could yeah. be in a customs union with the rest of Europe, and then they wouldn't be in a customs union with each other, but it would all be, be one. It would just be like, it would be a continuation under other terminology exactly. of europe but, right. like, but the eu has
5: absolutely not... no incentive to do that or to anything that allows the uk to appear to be able to be out while still having all of the benefits
1: right that's the trick of it but that's just negotiations and it'll, and and in my rosy my rose-colored trump trade glasses i'm thinking it'll probably happen it'll be fine i, th-
6: I think the analogy that's maybe more uh apt as regards Certain things in terms of the United Kingdom's integration into just-in-time supply chains, not just for cars and aviation and avionics, but also just for food, is to consider the United Kingdom in an American context as one of the states of America.
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know,
6: we are—we get our tomatoes f- overnight from Spain. You know, we get our—the uh, meat just flows freely, no checks whatsoever. So suddenly, putting up a low a, a, a tariff border. Customs border, checks for animal and plant health, and those suddenly putting those up, which are the legally required checks that the EU applies, and indeed the UK applies as an EU member to so called third countries. Well, the United Kingdom wants to be a third country. That is the government's policy, wants to leave the single market, wants to leave the customs union. It's not like the French and the Dutch, even the Irish, have a choice on mm. this. They have to apply these checks. Now, how intensively they and pragmatic they are about them, whether they're able to, is another question. But they they do have to, and they have, they're have they preparing an emergency decree law just to try and, you know, maybe be a bit reasonable about that. But they will apply them, if especially if there's no deal. And that, some of the language in, amongst the UK government now has cottoned on to this and is already preemptively describing this as things like, quote, an economic embargo of the mm-hmm. United Kingdom. This is quite this talk is you know serious stuff i mean in the sort of star wars trade wars this is the sort of stuff that pre- you know that you know you get, you get the raise, rise of the empire and then you get you know you get actual wars like, the, i'm not i'm not was, saying this that this was the yeah.
3: original crawl of the original star wars <laughs> this is about a trade dispute yes no no yeah. it's, it, 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 it,
6: exactly it, well not exactly but yes that's the analogy i'm i'm, I'm reaching towards which is but you so do which, you, which when you, you have is the Brexit, rich? you have the Brexit. <laughs> well, it, that you can flip it either way. I'm sure, depending <laughs> on your perspective. But I think the point here is you have the Brexit Secretary Dominic Rob using the two word phrase "economic embargo" to describe the application of EU law on March the 29th. Now, this is quite interesting. If we go for No Deal, or if No Deal, I don't think anyone actually wants to go for it. But if it, if it's the end result of this and the blame game is they have done this to us, and the Europeans have said, no, you've done this to yourself, the politics of that are are pretty tricky for everybody, really, because the natural... All you can do is is double up on it's their fault, no, it's our fault, it's their fault, the tariffs are their fault, and you start to get a trade war. You know, you get a trade war pretty quickly. Now, it's abundantly true that it's in everyone's mutual interest to avoid that, Mm. but the reason why I was nodding my head... Uh, shaking my head, I should say, the reason why I'm shaking my head and not nodding it was that the politics of this are pretty difficult. People are creating, when they come up against negotiation difficulties, UK government is just drawing more red lines. And so the actual capacity to create compromise that can A, pass the Europeans and B, pass our own parliament is becoming thinner and thinner Mm. and thinner. And then you add the other layer on top of this. You're taught, you you assume economic, rational self-interest as you assess it. We got rid of experts. It doesn't matter. It was to me that that interview with Michael Gove said the people of this country have had enough of experts was to me. And I'm still slightly in shock about that interview two years ago. Um, but when they say no deal is going to cause an 8% hit to GDP, people say, well, I don't believe in forecasts anymore. Hmm some of the ways in which a sort of liberal democracy assesses what a consensus believes to be a bad idea they aren't firing in the united kingdom at the moment either the civil service the media the economists you know it's not don't don't expect necessarily something that the economic consensus to perceive to be a very bad idea naturally not happen well
5: i just that's thing, not
6: that's not the place the, the uk yeah, the is in at the moment are not
3: powerful enough to, right but
5: i would just think of like what's happened like following say the greek kind of drama for you know practically a decade and how what always happened was that you kind of went up to the last possible moment because it's in no politician's best interest to appear to be kowtowing to anyone else so they wait to the last possible moment and then some cobble together not particularly great deal Gets put together. They kick the can down the road, and then a few years later, we do it all over again. And I wonder yeah, if the, I know it's much more complicated in this particular instance. But the UK
6: is a big enough economy to be able to say uh, we can trade with, we can sustain the damage. The damage will be mainly to those sectors of the economy that operate under EU law. Mm. I think you know, and yeah. those are concentrated in quite high So the
3: it's basically London.
6: Well, it's not. Well, it's a bit more than. Oh, it's the car industry. It's Airbus, it's the pharmaceutical industry, it's tech, don't forget data. I mean, we've had Tim Cook over to Europe lauding EU privacy and data laws. If there's no deal, we don't even know if people with servers in the UK, in this building, Mm. are allowed to hold data on EU citizens or transfer it across the channel. I mean, this sounds... But literally, we don't even know. The Europeans have refused, and this is where there's blame on all sides. Europeans have refused any permission to people to negotiate in advance of us actually leaving whether or not our standards in the UK are equivalent to EU standards. They haven't even had a conversation about it yet. And then the same thing applies to car standards. The same thing applies to um, derivatives. Oh my God, derivatives. (laughs) Like tens of squillions of trillions of stuff. Mm. And people are like... Okay, so I I reckon down the line in uh, 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 in New York you're thinking, well, they just have to sort this out because mm. there's no way they'll let this go pop. But then you flip it. There are some in the continent who want this to be a Lehman's moment for the United Kingdom. They want to crystallise that the great Anglo-Saxon economy, you know, has gone mad politically and economically.
5: Right, but if you think about, if you look at the European continent right now, what is happening in so many countries with fears of nationalism and larger parties losing share to tiny, especially kind of far right, far left parties. It seems like the people who are really controlling power are going to really not want to have this just massive debacle with the UK.
6: Well, or maybe they would. Maybe they would. Maybe it would show the superiority. Yeah. I mean, you can play that either way, I would say. I I know, I know, what you're saying and it's a very fair argument especially ahead of the european elections which happen in may on the other hand if your president macron sat in the Élysée doing fairly controversial and unpopular thatcherite policies for which the economic benefits will not be seen for five years what better way than a little spot of economic nationalism that you didn't want yourself uh, repatriating car factories and uh, the odd bank um the odd bank being the, in the english sense uh to paris they've got the european banking agency already they you know the, it is in the interests of some in the french for example government having seen you know their best graduates from paris just leave and come to london to just in their view let the united kingdom give the united kingdom some rope Does that mean that 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 the United
3: Kingdom, even if it wanted to, couldn't sort of call an emergency halt to the whole thing and say, look, no one wants a hard Brexit. No one wants no deal. If we haven't got a deal together, can we just like stay in um, past March 29 until we manage to cobble something together? Is that even possible?
6: Well, I would look very carefully at what's going to happen with the Channel Tunnel and the M20 and going back to some of the questions about the...
3: Wait, what's the M20? The M20
6: is the motorway that goes to the Channel Tunnel, okay. right? So this is our fundamental trade link to Europe. And already, you know, our government is spending money turning a 13-mile stretch of that M20 and going towards the Channel Tunnel into a lorry park. They are hardening the hard shoulder so that it will carry the weight of parked lor- 5,000 parked lorries. And that's on one stretch of of that motorway. There's another stretch of motorway which is also being turned in, is being given the technology to turn into a car park and an airfield too. So this Wait, I don't happening. understand this, the point you're making, Faisal.
1: I'm sorry. The point <laughs> is
3: that the Brits are already like hardening preparing up for the airfield embargo. for like, you know, thousands and thousands of trucks to be lined up. You know, trying to get in and out of the country. Well, it's mainly out rather than <laughs> mainly in. Out. Presuming
6: that those checks that I talked about on the French side of the border do apply from uh, from March, so that those investments are already being applied, and uh, if you get that moment, if on the first of, you know, people are trying to avoid it, but I, my sense is is that there are some, not necessarily the leaders of these countries, who could do with a few. Pictures of that being the symbol of Brexit, and they will try to blame that on the United Kingdom. But
5: doesn't it also it, it, seem like perhaps the United Kingdom? Even even yes, they're obviously like, and you guys know far more than I do in terms of the differences, but it seems like the conservatives who definitely don't want there to be you know anything that would spur no confidence of vote to trigger new elections so then you could get corbyn in power and then you have those in remain who certainly aren't going to want a no deal brexit it just seems like you would actually perhaps have incentives to at some point get something done so you're not just going to fall out of the eu no, they, but you're, no, talking no denying, you're talking about incentives you're talking my no point is that the incentives, it, the, the,
6: incentives, the incentives the incentives are not firing they're not working they're working in different directions these days and the incentives of the Conservative Party uh, are stretched in different directions. Some people want a pure, clean Brexit. So the first thing they can do is go to the White House and try and sign a US trade deal. They want to sign that we want to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership. <coughs> this is the number one trade aim of the United Kingdom right now. So wait, I want to join ask, the Trans-Pacific. I want to ask
3: Alex about this. I want because you're an economist. I want you to tell me about this concept called gravity which is one of the most sort of powerful and ill-understood concepts in economics because it doesn't make a huge amount of intuitive sense but so can you explain
4: it um well basically it's the it's the geographic link between cities that are close together um and have a lot of, a high degree of economic interconnection. So for, for London, if you look at London and and its economic connections to peer cities, Paris is far and away the most important uh, partner city for London. Um, UK cities are sort of in third, seventh, tenth place on that list.
3: And in general, what happens in every country in the world, and as I know, there's not a single exception to this, is that, the trade ties are strongest to the countries which are closest. Yeah. And, you know, Japan trades with Korea and, you know, um Argentina trades with Brazil. And there's this feeling in the UK that, well, Faisal was saying we can sign a trade deal with the Americans or Trans Pacific this or whatever. But the fact is that you trade way more, you know, multiples more with Europe than you do with every other country in the world combined. And that's for sort of deep, um, gravitational reasons, you know, which have, which have been in place for centuries and you can't sort of, you can't do anything about. And that's the thing which like just annoys me more than anything else about Brexit is (laughs) that it feels like a whole bunch of Brits were basically voting against gravity. (laughs)
4: <laughs> they're voting against geographic reality but you look at well these, no, that's uh, for
6: goods I mean they would yeah. argue that the service sector that changes yeah, a bit but it it's, doesn't even it in does, services
3: okay. it applies like empirically yeah. speaking the trade in services is just as much um, subject to the rule of gravity as trade in well do goods. we not
6: do you, does the city of London not trade more in its accounting and legal and derivatives services if such things exist with Hong Kong than it would do with no it
4: trades mainly with the rest of Europe yeah um, i just thought i'd float that out <laughs> <laughs> there. but 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 it's amazing watching these guys so you have leading brexiteers people like dan hannon trotting around the world going to uganda saying look you know here's this fantastic relationship that i just had with this guy in uganda um you've got um, liam fox as trade secretary appearing in various far-flung places and saying look you know here's a here's a uh, yoga export deal with the the Philippines and it's you know it's completely detached from reality and that goes back to what I was saying before this is well, well they
6: do know. it's about trade-offs and it's to go back to Emily's original question which was about sort of reality and the trade-off is they fit the perfect Brexit sweet spots for the people pushing it in government and in the Conservative Party is that both you get to do these great free trading deals in the spirit of cobden and uh Mm. you know the 20th 19th century great trade reformers that's that's where they see themselves you get to do that with both developing countries and the united states and potentially china but at the same time you maintain frictionless trade with europe which is in their interests because they have a good trade surplus with the united kingdom um where that's more challenging is that frictionless trade within for 500 million people is a product of those same mm. EU laws and single market laws that they don't like
1: can i um can i ask you 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 mentioned this before and it's intriguing i i wonder if we could talk about it some more but the idea that there are some over there that want to push the uk to a lehman moment and sort of like let brexit Go hard, let there be no deal. I'm wondering, like we know what happened with our Lehman moment here, but what would what's the apocalyptic scenario going to look like if that happens over there?
6: Yeah, well, there's two things to note about that. Firstly, the macroeconomists economists uh, assert that of, that it, this will proportionally no deal hits it will it's bad for everybody, but it will proportionally you think the game theory of this hit the United Kingdom more than it will hit the eu27 that's just sort of basic percentages yeah. Yeah. uh within that it will affect neighboring countries ireland calais ports and rotterdam more the netherlands netherlands the, the, but across the whole eu27 so if you you accept that the brexiters don't accept that but i think the eu27 do believe that on top of that preparedness for no deal Better, um, you'd think better in the UK. I've been to kind of roadshows in Galway, where they're preparing soft loans paid for by the EU, so that they're changing supply chains. This is my favourite example: Irish cheddar exports, which normally would go to the UK, mm. they're being encouraged to change to make mozzarella to <laughs> export directly to the EU twenty-seven. Mm. Likewise, in the Netherlands, you go on this website called Brexit Locket. You type in your business details and some AI thing pops out a personalized piece of consultancy and advice about all the changes you need to make as a small, medium-sized business. Amazingly, there is no such service in the United Kingdom. So there are British businesses going to the Dutch and even getting loans from the Irish, which are not available from the UK government itself. So you have both the macroeconomics that says, if you believe it, and many in Britain don't, that's going to be worse the United Kingdom proportionally than everybody else. And then you have some in the most affected European uh, EU 27 nations saying, actually, we're even more prepared than you as well. The Dutch Prime Minister told me that directly. We're more prepared than the United Kingdom, which mm. is an extraordinary thing to say. So if that then, uh, in terms of this Lehman's moment, the perception is, I think, that a no-deal... On the EU side, a No Deal would be so bad for the United Kingdom. It would be annoying for the EU, but so bad for the United Kingdom that it would only last a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Which is dangerous, dangerous talk. But this is what I mean about Lehman's, Lehman's moments. So you talk about supply chains to supermarkets being interrupted, and then you think about things like the BMW plant in Oxford. They've moved forward their shutdown. They will re- re- rely on their just-in-time delivery of parts from the whole of Europe. They've pulled forward for the first time their annual shutdown to the first month after Brexit. So there will be no cars being made at the famous Oxford Mini plant for the first four or five weeks of Brexit. And that's because of Brexit. But they're presuming that no deal will only last four to five weeks because it can't last any longer. So who,
3: who's got the bazooka? And then you
6: just think about this, the pharmaceutical industry, stockpiling medicines, this is, is happening. They've been told to by the government for six weeks as well. And I believe that underlying that six-week calculation is that a no deal would only last... A couple of
3: weeks. So that's my question. So, like, the reason why we started seeing the first semblance of of like a, a bottom six weeks or so after Lehman was because um, Hank Paulson, the then Treasury Secretary, came out with his famous bazooka and he said, "I have a trillion dollars to spend, and yeah. I will spend it any way I can to fight this and to reverse this." And who is the equivalent in this part of the world who fa- who you know staring down a hard Brexit with a disastrous you know pharmaceuticals and food and cars and derivatives and everything else who ha- who can do that who can say I have a trillion dollars and I'm going to reverse this so
6: it's, it's politics rather than economics oh. so it's politics rather than a you know de- a economic bazooka isn't it? It, it, it that would be the presumption yeah. that there would be a change in the, the new, there would be a new there would
3: be like a new more pro-European prime minister somehow
4: I, I I personally I don't see how that is possible in the four to five week period that you're talking about. I think we just need to be a little bit care and I'd be interested in your views on how that works out in practice. But I think we need to be a little bit careful about the US analogies. This is um the power dynamics are incredibly different. You know, the U.S. can have Trump, can uh, suffer or benefit through Trump, move on from it. It's the U.S. It will, it will survive. The U.K. is in a very, very different position. The question of who's providing the bazooka. Um, can any I, I, I question whether any u k leader can come in and have enough influence and capacity to to turn us around in the forty five. Well, yeah, I'm hearing clear, from I'm both of you
1: is, that there's yeah. no one in charge over there it It just sounds the more you both talk it just sounds like <laughs>
3: <done our> job <laughs> <laughs> but, but this, this is actually true as, as, as the sort of as the exile here as the Brit who hasn't lived in Britain for more than twenty years i I can tell you that that certainly the view I have from the outside looking in, I'm looking around at these midgets who are ostensibly yeah. in charge of the country, and I'm saying I cannot remember a time when there was less leadership and less ability in the in the
4: Houses of Parliament. So I I, I think this is partly a a long term trend. Um, so I think my personal view is if you look at the the caliber of parliamentarians and the caliber of people in in politics over a long 20 30 year time horizon you've just effectively seen whatever your politics left or right the the caliber of individuals being involved not being what it was 20 well, 30 years ago i'm gonna be more uh,
6: careful than alex on that as a working political journalist uh, <laughs> most of contacts are, are in the house of commons but then you overlay on top of that a binary yes or no question which in actual fact, in terms of executing the the Leave vote injunction from the people of Britain, uh, you do have an infinite number of actual landing points. And then you have a, an election that uh, is unclear in terms of how you can interpret... The will of the people. So you almost have two clashing mandates to interpret and interpolate. Now, of course, Brexiters don't agree with that. They say, well, hang on, 80% of the countries backed Brexit. But when they say 80% of people back leaving the customs union in the single market, well, that's much more debatable. And so suddenly you're having the same debates again. So this is in that in those waters, that is why something which was totally unthinkable Six months, nine months ago, is now. I wouldn't overstate it. Is now mm. thinkable. We saw seven hundred thousand people uh, on the streets of London protesting it, for uh, another another referendum. So you know, it's not. I can, well, let's put it like this: as an analyst of our politics, I can see the route to it. I can see the route to a general election. I can see the route to a no deal hard. I mean, I can see the route to everything. But some of those routes were closed off six to nine months ago, and they've now opened. They've now opened up public opinion is very interesting uh, it hasn't changed in headline terms hugely there's been a little bit of a shift towards remain but nothing that you would say was mm. fundamental what seems to have happened is that people who didn't vote are saying that if there was another referendum and again it's not the most likely event but it's not totally it's not impossible people who didn't vote people maybe who were too young to vote at the time are saying that they would come out and vote for remain if there was another referendum one little nugget that is quite interesting in this atmosphere where people don't believe experts, they don't believe journalists, they don't believe politicians, telling them that something might be bad for them. The unions that represented, the labour unions that represented factory areas that voted for leave, they came out after very careful consultations with their members for another referendum. And what they claim on their internal polling numbers is big shifts in those factory working class Mm. areas why because you don't believe the politicians and you don't believe even your union boss and you don't certainly don't believe journalists but when you see the forge that makes the part for your particular bit of the jaguar land rover supply chain being physically put on a truck and moved to austria as you'd expect it would need to be if it wants to guarantee that it can be part of the supply chain for a factory on the continent or if you want it to be part of an eu free trade deal export to china to count as local content under the trade rules this is happening right now if that if the thing that literally gives you your job is literally being moved to austria won't come up in the macro numbers but it'll certainly get around the community pretty quickly and so there's certainly more than anecdotal evidence that some of those shifts are happening and for people that were told and believed the idea that their jobs won't be affected, mm. that is quite a shock. I wouldn't. It, you, you don't. You don't see it in the macro polls. You don't see it in the macro numbers. But I'm told that that is why the unions felt confident to back what they call a people's vote. It's why Labour, the opposition party, have just opened up a little bit a route to another referendum, and it's why, from being very capable of ruling it out three to six months ago you can now see how you get to it. And probably the stories I told you about the Channel Tunnel would be another staging post towards that being on the cards, Um, even though it would be very strongly resisted, obviously, by the 30% of the population who are avid Brexters.
2: This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at progressive.com to try the name your price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. What's the next big signpost we need to watch on this? Or care about.
6: So the next big signpost is we're gonna have a week's break because the government essentially is too scared to admit to what is likely to be thumping compromises in order to get a deal past Europe. It can't detail those in front of its own MPs until after its budget has passed. Because that you know, the rebels, the Brexiter rebels when the Conservative Party are trying to use any leverage they can, even totally unrelated, in order to try and force the Prime Minister to change her plan. Their last bit of leverage is the budget vote next Thursday. So you won't hear much but then after that, I'd expect pretty quickly, you'll get the details of the compromise that she has to do, the Prime Minister, in order to get a deal with the Europeans over Northern Ireland. That will upset her own backbenchers and the multi-billion euro pound sterling question is whether uh, they can stomach that and vote for it when it comes to the House of Commons. So I, I think that she should be able to get a deal, although it would seem to go against some of the some of the uh, assurances she's given to her own MPs, just even in the past few couple of weeks. But then it would go to Parliament, and I and I I could not tell you that that would pass through Parliament. But it, that will. I think be a bit like was it the Tarp vote? You know, <laughs> yeah, it'll yeah. be a little bit like that, and and people will be threatened uh, in two different ways. If you're a bit of a Remainer Tory MP, you'll be threatened if you don't get this, you'll have no deal. If you're a Brexiter, you'll be they'll be threatened the exact opposite. If you don't get this, you'll get no Brexit because we'll have a second referendum. So it's quite an unstable equilibrium that is literally I have, impossible yeah, to, I have, to predict. I have,
3: yeah, I have yeah. a question for a, a different question for Alex which is um, given how much of an omni-shambles this is and is going to remain, given how damaging this is and is going to be for the UK, is there at least a silver lining for Europe that the rest of Europe, looking at the disaster that's happening to the UK, is going to be more coherent? It's not going to have the UK sitting at the table always being the sort of, you know odd man out voting Mm. against everything and that we could actually have the you know the other EU 27
4: nations be a stronger European Union without the UK than they were with it um it's a good question I mean firstly I think that's a little bit unfair to how the UK has engaged in Europe in the past so the UK is and actually interestingly at the moment on non Brexit related dossiers, the UK is running around Brussels being quite helpful and engaging with things. And the UK, it, it, it's a slightly unfair characterisation to say that the UK has been an unengaged um, EU member. The other thing to bear in mind about the, EU, the UK's role in the EU is that it's been part of a more socially and economically liberal free market. Open bloc um, that now will comprise Germany, the Benelux, Scandinavia. Um, so the UK's departure changes, I think, a little bit the balance of influence within Europe between the more dirigiste um, uh, states and the more the more liberal, the more open market ones. In terms of the the demonstration effect of the UK leaving, I mean this this goes back a little bit to the Deng Xiaoping quote about you know <laughs> you kill kill the chicken to scare the monkeys. Um, there are some people around the continent who think that, um, but I think it's a very dangerous game to play because, you know, the UK for all its perceived faults in the rest of Europe, um, is, you know, it's a member of the family. This is a little bit like, um, the debate about Greece. Um, yes, you obviously have the Schäuble view that Greece needs to be made an example of. You need to demonstrate that there are particular things that are allowed and are not allowed in order to... Show the Italians and the Portuguese and the Spanish and everything else. It's a dangerous argument because it runs the risk of um, making people feel like the EU um, is an institution that punishes. So, but the, a,
6: but, the, but then there's a, the difference. The, the The difficult line is this: Is it punishing us? Yeah, to say. We don't want to abide by the laws under which no, the no. car industry was no. reestablished in the UK. No, no, no. I don't, I don't or have know. we chosen that for ourselves? Well, well, we, we, I mean, yeah. the, this is this is. Or yeah. have we chosen to eschew the completely frictionless supply chains that underpin our entire economy? Or are they punishing? Or are they no. punishing us? So no. this is a fundamental debate, and you're already seeing a preemptive blame game. So Alex, is to- Alex is totally right about that um but the politics of who's to blame exactly, uh, exactly. is already and happening it's starting, preemptively. and it's only going to get worse and well i mean i mean i i, I, I must push back fact. against you actually felix <laughs> because actually there well no there are i mean clearly there are a uh, brexiters who acknowledge that it might be a rough patch shall we say over the next few months but then say the united kingdom for example could essentially adopt us essentially merge into the into the us regulatory system um and there'd be a a boost um from that there uh, uh I know you sounds <laughs> there's money to be saved from the eu uh subscription fees um, it's peanuts in the big scheme of things yeah yeah no I'm, well we need to go through the, I mean because yeah. I mean it's, we don't, don't want we, really we don't, don't want don't Felix really. <laughs> we don't, we don't want we don't want Felix to leave london thinking that there, there's still a significant body of political and public opinion yeah. that think that if there are sacrifices, that they're worth it.
3: Yeah, but they're wrong.
6: <laughs> well, then, uh, well, they might not be. For, well, yeah. listen, I, well, no, hang on a minute. I mean, let's just. <laughs> I, I, I mean, you would have said, you uh, would have said, and no doubt that the China joining the WTO and its great boost to Western incomes was brilliant but it wasn't brilliant for everybody it wasn't brilliant and donald trump's election in michigan and the rust belt shows that the consequences of ultra free trade and the what we call the dim sum between the u.s and the china didn't work out for everybody so i, I just think that what matters is not what trump and brexit do show is what matters is not macro level statistics The distributional impact of these grand trade changes also matters. And, you know, I can create, you know, that it's bad for the car industry. Well, the car, you know, the car industry, here's one of the really interesting things. In Sunderland, where the Nissan factory, which is the epitome and symbol of frictionless single market Literally eighty percent of these cars get my, uh, get exported to the EU. In that town, when I ex- did a documentary and i expected to hear everybody say, oh, "I'm really worried about the Nissan factory," many of the people there thought that the Nissan workers were like the bankers of Sunderland. They're really rich, they've got good pensions. They get to buy all the nice houses, and I, I, yeah. and so you know there was there was actually I there was some degree of resentment. So, I just think there's so many sub stories here going on, and running an economy and a country on macro numbers is what has brought publics in the u s to vote for Trump and in the u k to vote for brexit
3: let's have a let's have a numbers round um because there are so there are many numbers we can have here, but um Alex, did you bring a number forty eight what, what's, what's, what's 48?
4: Uh, 48 is the number of letters that need to go to something called the 1922 committee uh, from Tory backbench MPs to trigger a leadership contest. Uh, and a leadership contest is possibly the last thing that the UK needs in the final closing stages of uh, the negotiations. But it's not impossible. Personally, I think it's more likely after May has done the deal and her Brexiteer colleagues can then Blame her for everything that goes wrong with it. I think a leadership contest is relatively likely next year, but it's not impossible that it happens in the relatively near future. Anna? Uh,
5: My number is four billion pounds. So that's about an estimate of the medicine and non-perishable food that the UK population would need for (laughs) one month. And the entire budget of the No Deal Planning Commission is three billion pounds. So, just suggests that there, there essentially are no contingency
6: plans.
3: Faisal's giggling. <laughs>
6: <laughs> You're cheering us up. Okay, well, yeah. Well, a similar one. Mine is twenty for the M twenty, which is a motorway. <laughs> you may, you may start to know a lot about if things don't go the way uh, that mutual self interest would suggest. And it's my exa- the M twenty is the acid test of whether. <laughs> Mutually advantageous interest actually functions as a way in which to determine or forecast where countries and economies go, because when our helicopter with a camera goes up above that motorway, this is what I say to ministers, I'll say, are you going to be the minister that does the interviews on April the 1st? Because uh, it is April the 1st, which is April Fool's Day, <laughs> that will be the first working day after Brexit. And if it's no deal, uh, you know, the skycopter's going to be busy.
3: <laughs> Emily.
1: I have an American number. It has nothing to do with Brexit, but I can try and tie it in at the end. The number is, but I won't probably. The number is $90 million. That is the amount of money that Google paid to Andy Rubin when he left the company. The reason he left the company, um, according to this really interesting New York Times piece that came out yesterday, the reason he left the company is because of sexual misconduct, um, which Google found was a credible allegations. So to summarize again, he was accused of credibly of sexual misconduct and Google gave him $90 million um, to leave. And the piece is really interesting because... And
3: then invested in his next company. And
1: invested in his next company. The piece is interesting because it shows how This company, Google, managed out all these male executives accused of just like a a wide range of sexual misconduct and um, really treated these guys really well. Um, Ruben got money. You know, the woman he dallied with got nothing. And there's a few other examples like that in the piece. I encourage people to read it. And I guess the overall point is that these these men are going to be okay, and probably a lot of elites in the UK will also be okay. That's how I tied it together
3: <laughs> my 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 number is seven hundred and sixty seven because my feeling is to try and s- turn this vaguely into a topical <laughs> number, which it isn't um there's one way that you will be fine if you're a Brit or an American, and you know the worst thing happens, and that is if you win the lottery <laughs> as a one woman in South Carolina did. Um, she won $1.6 billion in the Mega Millions lottery last week. So that was a nice lottery jackpot for her. Um, my number is 767, which is the annual per capita lotto spending in dollars in the state of Massachusetts. Wow. The average citizen of Massachusetts spends $767 per year on lottery tickets. Uh, Those
6: all Harvard uh, students. <laughs> uh, almost certainly. <laughs> Um, I thought you meant seven six seven, as in the Boeing planes, so that people might be able to fly stuff in. How, how, how long would the
3: How long would it take to just to, to you know evacuate the British Isles? That's
6: not a listen. I mean, uh, people like to do monger, but I think I think you may be going too far there. <laughs> I think you may be going too far, but uh, that's not going to happen. What was the film? There was it was twenty eight weeks later, wasn't it, where the Americans. Kind of come in and uh, to an evacuated UK that's been ravaged by zombie virus. I, I think I think that's taking it
3: too far. So Brexit, <laughs> <laughs> Brexit, not, is, not bad. As bad as Brexit is bad. Not, as, no, not as bad, as bad as a zombie apocalypse. Brexit is bad, but not quite as bad. No, I didn't say it's bad. I'd
6: yeah. say it's interesting from a journalistic perspective. So 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 on the scale of one to zombie apocalypse, <laughs> how, how bad is Brexit? It depends.
3: <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so um, okay, so well, th- <laughs> thank you for listening to Slate Money. If your if your brains have not been eaten by zombies, um, tune in next week. And if on April the first you have any friends in the United Kingdom, do give them a ring and say you're thinking about them. Because or a good time doing, to
4: invest, yeah, send food packages, send, yeah, send, or invest, or, or invest, or in both. <laughs> <laughs> I guess my number
3: could have been. Um, a dollar 28 which is how much we Americans are paying for your British pounds these days. Ah. It's not very much, you know. Mm. No. Um, anyway, I think that's all we have time for. Many thanks for listening. <coughs> Do keep the emails coming on slatemoney at slate.com. Thanks not only to Max Jacobs for producing this in New York, but also to Ryan Dilly here in London who's managed to make it all sound wonderful. And we will talk to you next week on Sleep Money.
4: This is the story of the one.
6: As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping.